keynote speaker for the day. And again, we're, we're so thankful that you're here. This will be, be your last time to hear from me. Uh, thank you to our guests that have come. Thank you to Lee, uh, who spoke for our first session. Uh, hope you all have a blessed Saturday. Uh, Pastor Robbie. Thank you, Cody. Um, just wanted to introduce uh, Leonce before I do. Before I do, uh, I want to I want to say that um, um, I'm very thankful for our church that would be able to willing be willing to put something like this on. Um, I won't say that I that we encountered heavy opposition, but there were plenty of people to let us know that they didn't think this event was a good idea. Uh, and I want you all to know that. Um, and uh, the, one of the reasons that we supplied, how many people actually, pick, raise your hand if you picked up the book called Letters from a Birmingham Jail, Letters to a Birmingham Jail. The book, that book, please read that book because it, it's several things. One, it begins with the letter from Dr. King from the Birmingham Jail, and then it proceeds to go through about 10 pastors and how that letter has shaped their ministry. I can't believe I went 30 years on this earth in, you know, in how many years I've been in pastoral ministry and never once read Letter from a Birmingham Jail. He wrote it to people like me, a white pastor in the South. Um, I can't believe I never read that. If you've never read it, either read it in that book or go home and please read it. It was just, after I read it, I loved it. There's actually um, one of the gentlemen who's in that book is a pastor in Roswell, his name's Crawford Loritz. We invited him, but his church is actually having a uh, marriage conference this weekend. Um, but I, I wanted to encourage you to read that if you can, uh, because it's a great resource. And after you leave, you're going to want to find resources and such. Um, I met Pastor Leonce, as I said, uh, about a month or two ago. Um, we had some, a great conversation. I knew as soon as I met him, um, I, I thought this was the dude. Um, and he is the, he's an author, he's an international speaker, he's the founder and senior pastor of Renovation Church in Atlanta. He's the author of Renovate, Changing Who You Are by Loving Where You Are. He's the graduate of the University of Oklahoma. He was an All-American wrestler and defensive end for the Sooner football team. He actually played for uh, the New Orleans Saints. Um, he began ordained ministry nine, for nine years <clears throat> and holds a graduate degree from the University of Tennessee. He's actually currently a Master of Divinity student at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, his church is a member of Acts 29 Network, if you've ever heard of Acts 29. He and his wife, Brianna, reside in the heart of downtown Atlanta with their two daughters and one son. So without any further ado, yes, sir. Three daughters. Oh, wow, you better update that, man. Um, so anyway, without any further ado, uh, please give a warm welcome to Pastor Leonce Crump. Well, I feel like we know each other already uh, <laughs> by the round table, and I didn't mean to throw off Pastor Abby there, but we have a four-month-old uh, little girl, total surprise. Uh, I'm sure none of you know what that's like, uh, but uh, she's great, and um, fatherhood is a joy for me, and so uh, being a father of four uh, is my why for a lot of what I do and uh, wanting to leave not only a legacy of the proclamation of the gospel for them, uh, but a world that has been radically touched by it. Um, I've talked a lot already, and so I'm gonna try to be done here in about 25 minutes. They gave me 45, uh, we'll see what the Holy Spirit does. But if you would, pray with me, I'm gonna pray for you and then we'll ask for God's help in this. Father, 
grant us the grace now of hearing with clarity what you would say from your word. We know why we are here. I hope we know why we are here. And that is to be challenged to transform, to see the world through your lenses, to connect the living word of God uh, to our hearts and from our hearts to the world around us, that we might further see the inbreaking of your kingdom until you return to reclaim what is yours. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said. This quote has been used many, many times, I'm sure. And I imagine that you are familiar, but I believe it is apropos not only to the preceding discussion, but even to what I would like to share now. Dr. King said so many years ago that Sunday was the most segregated day of the week. And I remember when I first encountered that quote, how startled I was that some 50 years later, that statistic remains relatively true. In fact, uh, if you look at church statistics here in the United States, uh, 5% or less of churches would uh, deem themselves multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-anything in any regard. Uh, most churches are monocultural and monoethnic and monoeconomic and monoeducational. Uh, in fact, the litany of things by which society uh, would divide us, separate us, rank and file us, uh, find their expression in the body of Christ. And that should deeply grieve us. It should make us wonder, as, as again, referencing our previous conversation, uh, if that good news, uh, that the God that we serve when faced with the rebellion of humanity in desiring to be their own God and rule over their own lives, if that good news of the gospel that is supposed to radically alter every aspect of our reality has really taken root in the heart of Western evangelicalism. Because if it has, then how do these paradigms still exist? And that's kind of how my mind works. Uh, I'm a natural skeptic. I didn't grow up in church. I became a Christian in my teenage years after being a part-time Catholic. Uh, as a matter of fact, I went to Catholic church twice as a child. Once uh, as a part-time altar boy, I lit a curtain on fire, and that was the last time that I was allowed to carry the candles. Uh, and so my view of God um, was shaped by that experience, and my view of the church was shaped very much the same way. But at the same time, it is that same mind that will not allow me to stand back with unreconciled uh, equations. Okay, are you tracking with me right now? If we in one man all sin, and we in one man have all been made alive again, how do we continue to exist in our cordoned off corners, divided by the very things that Christ himself said he came to abolish? That is the question that I lay before you and the weight that I place upon you to be 
skeptical students of the reality in which you exist to lay the scriptures over the world in which we find ourselves and to ask the right questions so that they would drive you not only to the comforting belief that if you have believed on Jesus that your soul is secure, but to the immovable and irrevocable responsibility of acting out of that transformation. I've been tasked with something very specific today and so I'm gonna try to do that work and then I'll be out of your way. If you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter two and we'll set the stage here. Paul begins in chapter one with a beautiful greeting, a justification of his station as one who has been entrusted with the gospel and his rejoicing over what God has done in this bustling metropolis of Ephesus, which would now be in some part of southern Turkey. He begins with uh, a doxology, which is very Pauline in practice, and, and he celebrates the wonder that God is. The one who chose us and adopted us. The one who before the foundation of the world determined that we would be his children, not by merit, but by grace. The one who has given us redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. The one who has lavished upon us the wonder of his presence and his power and his person sheerly through the goodness of his grace. I knew somebody helped me preach this morning. <laughs> the one who did it all according to his purposes set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. Why? I'll read it to you. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on where? Earth, both vertical and horizontal. Well, he goes on talking about our predestination and our inheritance being sealed in the Holy Spirit. He gives thanksgiving again for the greatness of God and the work of the people there in Ephesus. And then he gives them a reminder of what it is that this gospel has actually accomplished. It's important. He gives them a reminder of what it is that this good news, all the good news is there in chapter one. What has this actually accomplished? Well, first he has to remind you of where you come from. He said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who you were. You were the walking dead. You were not fully alive. You thought you were fully human, but you were not fully human because we forfeited our humanity the day that we attempted to be God in Adam. You forfeited your glory 
The image bearing that was declared over you in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 has been marred. It has been smeared. It is like a mirror that has had Vaseline rubbed on it. And you can still kind of see the remnants of what you were supposed to be, but it is all distorted and messy. In fact, there's an authority that hangs over that distortion, the prince of the power of the air. And his spirit was at work in you once, causing you like animals to live out of your passions and your desires reactionarily to your environment driven only by your insatiable hunger to satisfy yourself and worship your own desires. That is the unredeemed state of humanity. And Paul says that you are like those. And for that reason, The very wrath of God hung over you. His justice, I prefer that word. His justice. Because he is just in that. Because he made you in his image and gave you his likeness and you chose to try and ascend to his throne. And then my favorite two words in the Bible. But God. But God. I've never heard two sweeter words in my whole life, but God. And then after Paul has laid out for them and for us their former state and the state of any who would find themselves outside of the comforting and covering wings of the Holy Spirit in Christ, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were working really, really hard to be good people, even when we had it together four days out of seven during the week, even when we gave to the poor and took care of, no, 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 no. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. When we were enemies of the living God. When we despised Christ himself. He made us alive again together with Christ. You see, that is that good news. That When I wanted nothing to do with Jesus, Jesus wanted everything to do with me. When I despised the name of God, God delighted in the name that he stamped over me. When I wanted to run into my own desires, Jesus said, I will die to hang your desires on a cross that I did not earn so that you can walk in my righteousness, which is a gift that you did not earn. That's that good news. Made alive together With Christ, by grace, you have been saved and raised 
to be co-heirs in Christ's inheritance, seated with him in heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And just in case we didn't get it, Paul says, can I say it again? By grace, you have been saved through faith. So not only is God the active initiate of this glorious gift, but you too have had to believe and you believed. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. He says, but also we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the tension in which we exist? Or shall I flesh it out? You were dead. Dead people don't make choices. God brought you to life, raised you up together with Christ. Why? Because you were so good and so delightful to be around. No, because of his grace, because of his kindness, because where we would have washed our hands of humanity, God said no. Remember, our theology doesn't begin in Genesis 3, it begins in Genesis 1. Very good, very good, very good. Look at them. I know how I look at my children. Says the Father delights in us much more. This is who you were, this is who you are. Not by works, but because of grace. You couldn't earn it so that you could not what? Posture and position and rank and file. Are you tracking with me right now? The very reason you could not work out your salvation through the amount of good you could do or lose your salvation through the amount of bad you could do is to keep us from the very divisions in which we exist. And yet, even though you can't work for your salvation, there is good works for you to do. Therefore, you cannot just, as we young people say, chill in your election. You cannot just bask in the glory of God's goodness over you and just wait till the heaven train scoops in to take you on. No, you've been transformed for a purpose. Let me read it to you again. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'll put in a catchy phrase for you. Works are not working of transformation. Works are not working of transformation. Works are not the means of transformation. Works are not working of transformation. And so after Paul has laid his foundation, he started with God, chapter one. He moved to us, mid one into two. 
He moved out from us into the implications of that transformation. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he turns to one side of this division. And he said, don't forget, there's a period where you would have been considered unclean, where you did not have the sign and seal of the covenant. Y'all are good Bible people. I know pastor preaches that good word around here. So you know that when that first happened, the foreskin was cut off, thrown at his feet. That is the sign and the seal of the covenant. At one time, you did not have that. And you would have needed that to be partakers in the promises of God. But because of what Christ accomplished, in raising you from the dead, then the only sign and seal you need to be partakers of those promises of God that hang over his people, starting in Genesis 12 with Abraham and then extending to all of the nations, the only thing that you need to seal you in that covenant is faith to believe that God is who he says he is. And then he seals you, turn back to one, in the Holy Spirit, with the inheritance that comes. In other words, never forget this side, that at one point you were lost and you were a stranger, not first and foremost to those with whom you currently share community, but to God himself. But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Turns to the other side. How did he do it? Will you Jews he did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He did it by taking away your man-made divisions. He did it by abolishing the laws expressed in ordinances and commandments that he might create in himself one new person in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God. Both to God. In one body, Christ's body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let me give you a little historical note. There was an actual dividing wall. As a matter of fact, God-fearing Gentiles 
had to worship in the court of the Gentiles. And they could not worship where the Jews worshiped God, even if they feared the living God. And there was an actual wall. You can look this up for yourself. And inscribed on that wall was a threat of death if they crossed that boundary because their image-bearing in the eyes of the Jews was less than the image-bearing of those born into the covenant of God. Their image-bearing in the eyes of the Jews was less than the image-bearing of those who were heirs of God's promises. Their image-bearing was diminished in their respects. In fact, When you turn back to that gospel account of Jesus clearing out the temple and saying that my temple, my father's house rather, will not be turned into a marketplace, do you know where the Jews set up their marketplace? In the court of the Gentiles. They wouldn't profane their own area with such things. But these who they deemed less worthy, well, who cares? about how they have access to God. And so this is not just a figurative hostility that Paul is speaking to. It is a literal hostility. It is a literal, tangible, palpable division that exists in a church. Remember, this is written to the church at Ephesus. In a church between Jews and Gentiles. And those divisions, some of them were established by God in former times, but most of them were established by men and women to maintain their position and their feeling of superiority. And so there, Not long after Jesus died, the church that he died to establish is already divided. You know, I look back and I read the Bible, and you'll laugh at this. Maybe you won't, but I know pastors will. And you realize that the human problem hasn't changed much over these generations. Pastor Eric was dead on. Racism, classism, all the isms, those are sin problems. But the societal implications shift and therefore how gospel transformed people appropriate their lives in light of that transformation moves with it. But it fascinates me. Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of believers. Apparently, right after Jesus died, people were already having problems showing up for church. It's amazing to me. Please don't miss church. Well, you know, I got a big rock rolling tournament this weekend. I don't, I don't know what they did. But, but, but it is fascinating. It's fa- Jesus just died. They are talking to people who literally walk with Jesus. Like who preaches this weekend? John gonna be there. Oh man, I wish I could make it. But you know, it was a long week at work and, and uh, you know, kids got soccer and I just, you know, Really? 
Jesus just died. And so what you have, family, is a continual onslaught, particularly in the writing of Paul, but rolling right into the writing of Peter, where it says you are one new ethnos. Now, now, listen, you only address things that need what? You're smart people, addressing. Why is Peter having to tell the diaspora that they're one new ethnos? Because they were living like they weren't. Why is Paul having to tell Peter, I mean, this, this is where you begin to connect the dots. That maybe when Paul jammed up Peter, in Galatians 2, Peter experienced more of the fullness of the transformation from this good news and realized that he couldn't be separating himself from Gentiles, especially when he already ate some bacon. The sheet came down. God said the pig is delightful to the eyes and twice as delightful to the stomach. Take a bite, Peter. Peter said, no, guys, I'm God. Eat that pig. <laughs> it's like being at your mama's house for Thanksgiving on 12. I can't eat no more. But when she says eat, what you do? You eat. Maybe it was Paul's charge in Galatians 2.14 that you are out of step with the what? Say it. Please say it for me. The what? The gospel. Don't you truncate the gospel. Don't you truncate the gospel. It is a personal relationship, not a private one. It is a personal, not a private one. Don't you truncate the gospel. Oh, well, Peter, if you could just be nicer and just kind of get along with social mores here, then no, no, no. No, you see, eating was a significant thing in that culture, as it is now. As it is now. At our church, yeah, we celebrate. We got 30 different nationalities. You know what I ask them once a month? Who's at your dinner table, though? It's easy for you to, to stare at curly or straight hair sitting in front of behind you and say, yay, look at us. We got a big black pastor, and he's dynamic and wears really skinny pants. You know, it's easy to do that. Who's at your dinner table? Who keeps your kids? Who do you call when trauma strikes? That's what Paul was saying to Peter. You believe in a Jesus who died for everybody, but you can't eat with these people because people who look like you are here now? You're out of step with the gospel. You're out of step with the gospel. Because there's no reality in which people who were dead can look at others who were dead and say that there is anything that makes me better. Such that I can't even worship with you. No, in Christ's flesh, the dividing wall of hostility was broken down 
And those things that separated us, circumcision and uncircumcision, laws and ordinances, skin and zeros, degrees, and the lack thereof, they cannot be our divisions anymore because we're one new people, one new people, one new ethnos. This is why you'll hear me say crazy things like race is a social construct. And I mean it when I say it, because it is. Scientifically, we are not different. It's a little drop of melanin that has given me that which you lay in the sun for hours trying to achieve. Unless you're Irish, then you just burn. See, I know these things. I know these things. Y'all know black people tan. We tan. We do. We get darker. It's a, it's a hilarious thing. Black people avoid the sun during the summer because we don't want to get no darker. And white people run to the sun because they're like, just a little bit, Jesus. If we only understood that we're the same. Both scientifically. And we're one people in Christ. And there are far-reaching implications of that. Listen, I promised you 25 minutes, so I'm going to hang it up. But you open up Colossians 3. It's actually, for me, a preferred passage than Ephesians. It is. Because I believe Paul's argument becomes more sophisticated at that point. He begins in Colossians 3.1, and he says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are below. And so then my mother and all the super spiritual people say, see, we ain't even got to worry about all this. We just got to wait till Jesus come and get us. And then he says, oh, wait, hold on a minute now. Then he brings it down to the person. And he said, remember the things that you used to walk in? And he lays them out, bam, 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 bam. And then he talks about the newness of Christ in our humanity. And you know where he lands that argument? The whole, set your things on, your mind on things that are above, not on things on, that are below, because you used to do this, but now you're this. And he lands that argument in Colossians 3.11, where he says, now therefore, what does therefore mean? What is the therefore, therefore? In light of all of these things, in light of a new mindset, in light of a new, in light of a new humanity, this is not just about your individual reality. Now, therefore, there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian. Christ is all and in all. And that's where he lands the argument. That's where he lands the argument. The understanding, the understanding of the transformative nature of the work of the Holy Spirit and the transformative nature of the proclamation of the gospel. Not only is it foundational, 
for all of our doing, our works, Ephesians 2. But it is indivisible from our understanding of our responsibility to see this world more readily reflect the world to come. They cannot be separated. That is what Paul makes the argument for in Colossians 3. Genesis 12, and, I, and I'm done. I know I, this is my third close. You'll know that I'm partially Baptist in that way. Um, <laughs> Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that all the nations of the world, all the ethnosis of the world will be blessed through you. Revelation 7, we see them all together worshiping God. God's chief goal in the gospel is his glory. God's goal out of his glory is to form a family for himself from all people. It is what you see in Genesis 1. It is what you see in Revelation 7. It is what you see completed and consummated in Revelation 21 when John has this glorious vision and he says the old heaven and the old earth have passed away and the sea is gone and behold I heard a voice from the throne and he said that there will not be death or crying or mourning or sorrow anymore for I am coming down and I will be their God and they will be my what? People. Behold, I make all things new. When we allow ourselves, when we allow ourselves to let the gospel be a private transformative message, we work directly against God's ends. Not only in race, this is this is one issue of many to which transformed people, both individually and institutionally, should be seeing this world more readily reflect the world to come as God in his glory forms a family for himself from all people. And we can live for nothing less. I will live for nothing less. And I pray that you wouldn't either. Let me pray for you and for me. Father, grant us the grace of both hearing and receiving. Let us be those with transformed hearts and minds. We'll see the world as it is and know that it is not what you intended. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that the world groans under the weight of Adam's decision and all of those who have subsequently followed his way. It has been subjected to futility by the sovereign one himself. And so I pray, Lord, that we would see both the individual and institutional, both the personal and the structural, both the horizontal and the vertical, both the cosmic and the intimate implications of that good news that Jesus died to save sinners and that we would live in light of it. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Let give a hand. And let's give a hand for Pastor Eric and uh, my brother Lee Parker. All right. I'm just glad that he was able to come all the way out here in Covington. I know. Have you ever been to Covington before? Well, hey, there you go. Well, we... Uh, Oh boy! Well, that well, you just stopped short of glory there. Um, but uh, I'll tell you this: um, when you leave here, you're going to hear that the government is shut down. You're going to hear thing. You're going to hear DACA. You're going to hear about people kneeling in the NFL. You're going to hear about statues. The world hadn't changed since we came in, but the Word of God has not changed either. And so when people go, hey, I heard you went to that race thing. How was that? Is that good? Did you hold hands? And did the, did the Democrats come in and tell you that they hand out? No. Say, hey, well, I went to a conference on Ephesians too. I don't know about you. It's funny how the gospel has such far-reaching implications for the way we live our lives. That's what this was about. I love how he ended. Race is one aspect. Now, it's part of the American experience. It's an inescapable reality. You'll find that when you turn on the TV. But race is one more thing. We can't act like race doesn't exist. If the Bible speaks so clearly and consistently and frequently, you better believe the church is going to speak about it today. And thank you, Leonce, for coming. And I tell you, he doesn't pull any punches. Neither does Lee. And uh, so y'all got to hear uh, just a, a broad array of men of God and I love Pastor Eric. I mean, just everybody here. I'm just so blessed, so thankful to Cody for, for you know, I came into Cody's office and said, hey, I want to do this, I want to do this. I'm thinking about this, maybe. And Cody was like, sure. I, I thought there was going to be some pushback. And Cody was like, well, you know, just make sure you do that. And I think it sounds good. I just was so thankful for that. We have a church that is not ashamed and is not afraid to preach the truth. So thank you all for coming. Thank you so much to Pastor Eric, to Pastor Leons, and to Lee, and to all of you um, for taking time out of your day and um, worshiping the risen Christ. Hey, everyone here is going to have to make a Jew from Nazareth your Lord. And he's not black or white. And uh, when you leave today, that is your reality. And we hope that this has encouraged you to continue to worship the living God. Amen. Thank y'all.